Welcome back to Guideposts to the Crossroads. I am your host, William Ramada. And I am here to help you remember, and I fulfill this in many number of ways, from literally helping remember who you are, how powerful you are, and that you have a purpose. I help you to recover memory after trauma, lost items, remember to care, remember to give, and to remember each other. We are literally the guideposts to the crossroads. This is all about helping each other. And today I would like to open up with this poem from a book called Between the Words. It's called Drop It All. I am a student and a teacher, a warrior and a preacher. I am a fighter and a lover, and I'll drop the selfish features. I erupt in phoenix fissures. In form, I'll walk as meeker, a light that shines for everyone and drops the self as seeker. Today, I'm going to be talking about controlling your thoughts and I'll put controlling in uh, quotation marks so this will be called the controller and as things go down the road I I just may delve into a little bit about conditioning um, our conception of reality but we'll, we'll see how that goes at first but I talk a lot about thoughts, so you know this this idea of controlling your your thoughts aspect of things. A lot of a lot of ideas out there they 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 talk about controlling your thoughts. You know, when I was younger and I was first had the the concept of meditation brought to me. That's what I thought it was. I thought it was controlling your thoughts. I thought it was um, how to not think, basically. And I, I don't know if that is possible. But I quickly found out that's not what it was. It's not about the control at all. And so I thought I would just speak on that a little bit today. So, you know, you may distinguish the mechanisms in your body between what is voluntary from what is involuntary. And this is like you think that you can control the thoughts in your mind. You know, like the movement of your limbs, the sounds of your voice, you know, things like that. And to a point, yeah, we can do some of that. However, there are things that you have no control over. You know, growth, digestion, and the circulation process. This all happens automatically without our conscious effort. So this this, this distinction actually only exists as a concept within our minds. There is no distinction in reality. So when you're examined, 
your breathing process, you know that it is happening automatically when you're sleeping and when you're not aware of it. But you could also feel like you can manually control your breathing when you want to. So this line of distinction between anything and reality is ultimately arbitrary. Uh, Buddha once said, in the sky there is no distinction of east and west. People create distinctions out of their own minds and then believe them to be true. Now, isn't this quite the concept, right? Because we do. We bring up these different distinctions in our lives and we, we accept them as true. So all the body mechanisms that you think you can control, you try to see exactly how you are controlling them you will eventually realize that you can't really explain it. When you do something like moving an arm, you just kind of do it like it just happens and you can only observe it happening rather than making it happen. So if you keep looking for a more baseline controller of yourself, you end up finding nothing except a pure witness. You're only witnessing these things happen. You can see that any act may sometimes be directed by a thought, but those thoughts are not directed by anything. Instead, they can only be observed by you. You are a pure witness, and that's how it is. So the controller, quote-unquote, that you think you are is constructed only in your mind. When an action happens or a decision is made, a thought appears in your mind and tells you that you performed the act or made that choice. So, for example, when someone asks you to pick between water or soda, a thought, a thought pops up and says, Huh, water. So you answer water. Then another thought comes and says, you made that choice. And then more thoughts come <laughs> that may provide some reasons on why you wanted water. But can you see that between the question and the answer, you are not actually involved? A thought simply popped up on its own. You did not choose these thoughts. They just showed up. You may argue that you do choose your thoughts and you made the choice because of this or that. Blah, 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 right? These are the reasons why I chose this. But whatever reasoning you come up with will also be supplied by your thoughts. If you say that you constructed that reasoning, then we come back to the same scenario. How did you construct that reasoning? What reasoning did you use to construct your reasoning? And this recursion can go on forever. We call this circular reasoning, right? We see it in everything. And we only find more thoughts, and they all pop up on their own. We're not conjuring these thoughts up. 
even if a lot of time was invested in in making a decision, maybe you're buying a house or whatever, and you're using careful consideration, and you gave it all the different possibilities. You know, you had a lot of back and forth. You know, we involve ourselves with a lot of a lot of things to make this choice. But the end decision will still consist of one single thought. And all the previous considerations are also made up of more thoughts. So whichever direction you go, there will only be thoughts. So if you want to find a root decision maker, then what you're really doing is trying to find a root cause. Yeah, but the cause of any decision is infinite as all factors are interdependent. And if there is a root cause, then you can see that it is very existence would negate you as the decision maker. Um so what are you choosing if the outcome has a pre-existing cause? In the in the uh, way of the Zen, there's this little insert that I'll read. It says, We feel that our actions are voluntary when they follow a decision and involuntary when they happen without a decision. But if a decision itself were voluntary, every decision would have to be preceded by a decision to decide, an infinite regression which fortunately does not occur. Oddly enough, if we had to decide, we would not be free to decide. Um, and, and that was... Uh, by Alan Watts, The Way of Zen. Alan Watts is awesome. I mean, he he's like, oh. I mean, when it comes to thoughts and choice, and uh, man, he, he just blows it away. I mean, he's old school, but boy, he knows it. So any choice you think you have made at any time in your life is essentially based on your programming which consists of several things, right? And I think we've talked about this before. Um, it comes from your genetic instructions. It comes from karmic imprints. Uh, the conditioning you received from your environment since birth, you know, all which were not determined by you. And, well, what about my environment since birth? Well, your culture, your school, your parents... Uh, friends, anybody that had some kind of influence on you. Uh, it could be today, like the news media is a big influence on it. So these are the things that are in your programming. And there's not a lot you can do about it unless you really sit down and create <laughs> what it is that you want. And you have to be very careful because when all this stuff seeps into your brain, it's just there. And you think you have an original concept and you don't. So 
if you spend some time watching your thoughts and your choices, you can see that they come and go, you know, just like the clouds in the sky. You look up, they're there. Then you look up again and they're gone. There's a process happening in their brain, just like process happening in the atmosphere. Only that the mind has misidentified you as the cause for its own activities. And that misidentification is also a thought. This is the you, the thinker, the controller. That's the thought. There is no thinker apart from your thought. Uh, kind of sounds like we are going in circles, but I, I want to break it down to where anybody can just listen and understand you know, because we are not original when it comes to these things. We we are not the controller. We are not the thinker. These thoughts, they come and go. The initial misidentification of you being a controller, it typically, typically it comes from an observation that your consciousness is limited to a body that is separate from everything else. And this body has some intelligence in navigating through the world. So the mind came to the conclusion that you are a separate entity and is responsible for operating the body. So after this conception of the separate entity, the thoughts arising on its behalf start to expand by engulfing more and more concepts about the entity, your body. Like maybe your attributes, your beliefs, your accomplishments, your possessions, stories, uh, what are your goals? A big one is your dreams and your preferences. What What are your desires in life? See, those kinds of thoughts, they then become more and more repetitive and start to form patterns in your mind. And these patterns become your truth, your reality, which we are about to go into. So these thought patterns, they get tangled up with your emotions and memories. And don't we act on those all the time, right? Oh, look at this world. We, we are an emotionally disturbed world sometimes. And... When these thought patterns do get tangled up in our emotions and memories, it creates this big bundle of energy patterns, and those patterns get stored in your body. And a little side note, that's why stress and anger and stuff can be so bad for you if you do not have it, you know, in some kind of, I don't want to say control, um, if if you, uh, I hate it when I have these loss of words, but just say control. If you do not have your stress controlled and your anger controlled, it goes into those energy patterns in your body, and this is what creates a lot of sicknesses, lots of cancers, lots of headaches, everything. It, it affects your body. 
And this is one thing that you don't want to happen. And this bundle of energy patterns, they behave, you could say like software and a computer. This is the software and it operates over your body. And the formation of the software is the development of the false you, which is your ego. We start living by this ego and we have a tendency of doing the wrong things, the bad things, the things that go, you know, uh, what's expected by the culture, which is not always expected to be true. And then these thoughts get running through our minds and we start going crazy, right? So we, we don't want to be run by ego. We want to be run by our true selves. So this is what I was talking about, about control, not controlling of your person or other people and thoughts. We do not control our thoughts. They come and they go. And we just naturally react to them. And that's what I like about meditation is you get to slow down. And as the thoughts come in, you're not trying to get rid of them. You, you contemplate them. You, you take a look at them and say, okay, thank you. I'm glad you're there. But now I'm going to let you go. And you sit and you calm down and focus on your breath you know, just focus on yourself, what you hear on the outside, the birds, the trees, the wind, or wherever you are. It could be here in the kitchen sink run. And then if another thought comes in, you just contemplate that. You realize it's there. You just say thank you, and you let it go. And you can think about the things that more that you desire to think about. And this will help so much with your stress and your anger and just everything else, the depression, anxiety. And you become such a better person because you're more thoughtful, more conscious, more every, everything that you would like to be. And this is what the meditation will do to you and your thoughts. And this leads into what I was going to go into also is um, our conditioning. What is our concept of reality? Hmm. Morning, Java. So the ego, which I mentioned, is what most people identify themselves as. I know a lot of people have different ideas of what the ego really is. It is what they refer to as the I. I this, I that, right? Me, me, me. This ego is essentially just a concept of who people think they are. And this gets conditioned, like your thoughts, of course, into your mind by society throughout life. You know, what's expected of a father, what's expected of a husband, a wife, a child, um, a worker, a boss. And it all begins when we're infants. We enter this world and the infant doesn't know what he is experiencing, right? He just simply 
is there. He experiences. You know, there's no concept of reality taking place in the child's mind. So the mind does not interfere with the experience by constantly labeling things, differentiating, judging, and commenting on everything. They just watch and learn. So it's like telling him that each thing is what it is, what he likes, what he shouldn't like, what you should do, what you shouldn't do. Uh, We teach the child what is right, what is wrong, good and bad, and so on, right? Uh, We don't give infants room to learn by themselves, usually. Uh, It is the programming I spoke to about earlier. We are programmed by what is around us. As this infant has no idea what the concept of self is, so he cannot differentiate between the experience and what is experience. The thoughts, the feelings, the perceptions, uh, the sounds, uh, the, the feelings, the sensations. An infant is completely at one with experience. To an infant, there is only what is. Oh, that's another this thing I just love about meditation. You just sit, and what is, it's just what is. And I, you, you live your life like that. And you, I think you'd be so much happier, but we're so reactive. And, and then being reactive, so you try to be proactive instead of just being what is. So being an infant, it could be the most glorious thing, but at the same time, it's not because we have a tendency to begin the programming. You know, after the child child uh, is birth, society starts to teach, you know, the child by drilling all kinds of conceptual knowledge into the child's head. We begin with naming things. That's the first things we learn, right, is what things are. So we, so we label them. We give them names. Then we classify them. And then we differentiate the things based upon attributes, like the pretty thing, the ugly thing, the thing on the ground. <laughs> you know, it, it's called a flower, uh, the green stuff. It's a grass. The blue stuff up above is the sky, <laughs> You know, and we we begin to give some botanical knowledge to the child, and it begins to classify and differentiate them. And conceptual knowledge is necessary for for many of our advancements because we're human and we need to make advances. And when we learn something, we need the knowledge to be stored in conceptual form so that it could be communicated to other people. And we're learning and relearning the same thing from scratch every time. And we want to avoid that, so we bring up concepts. However, conceptual intelligence is only one dimension of intelligence. You know, similar to intelligence and AI, which we have a lot of, um, this machine learning technologies, 
conceptual intelligence can only know something through division and comparison. It, it can only know the concept of me through the comparison of concept of you, you know, others. Therefore, it can only attempt to know something by studying the components of the composition through, um, I guess you could say, a continuous dissection. But it can never know anything in totality because it only knows what it's being programmed. And also, conceptual intelligence can only learn future actions from the data that is already gathered. So, so everything that is programmed within us from society is data that is already programmed to be given to you. And without that prior data, anything that you learn would basically be use, useless. And it's the same thing with robots, AIs, computers. It's only as good as the stuff that you give it, you know, what you could program into it. That's why nothing is perfect, right? Because we're human, we're imperfect. So, of course, computers and robots and cars are not going to be perfect because imperfection does not make perfection. And of course, we are not machines. If we, um, if we try to make conceptual intelligence the whole field of our intelligence, then we can only know reality by dividing it into parts, um, like me and others, uh, order and chaos, good and bad. This things we know every day. It's the way things are. So naturally we take the side, right? We take sides of what we want or what we desire and what we want to see overcome. Um, like I want to win over the others in order to win over chaos. We want good to win over bad. Well, most of us. So consequently, we become ignorant of the other side of reality, and we fail to see how the two sides are actually inseparable, like the two sides of the same coin. Right? You you can't separate them; they're there, but we fail to see the other side until you flip it. Right? Um, it's like when you're in an argument, you refuse to see the other side; you only see your own. But it's there, and it's always going to be there, and you can't get rid of it. But we we fail to see it, so we got to take this into consideration. We're not machines, we, and we have to flip the coin. So when we function this way through conceptual intelligence, then we can only think and act through that data, right? The existing data that we have gathered about the world the things that people have told us, what we have learned, our culture, integrated into us. So whatever data we gather, this we also have a tendency of dividing it, right? Because we can only gather data through our sense organs, and our sense organs are inherently dualistic. So it's going to cut up this reality into pieces. I can only feel something to be hot, if my own body temperature is colder by comparison. 
And I can only perceive what it is to be small if my body is big in comparison. So if, if you get the point. So like if I was a microorganism, then the external world would appear to be entirely different, right? I mean, really super huge. It's like we think we're so big on this earth, but then you see pictures of the universe and you're like, oh, I'm not. So big after all, I'm just like a speck of little dust on this planet. So ultimately, no matter how much data we gather, um, we're always going to be, and it's always going to be, a minuscule compared to this entire universe. So if we only function through our limited data, then we can never discover we can never discover, we'll never know anything new. Uh, Shunru Suzuki said, we should not hoard knowledge. We should be free from our knowledge. Everything we learn, we have to give out. We, we can't keep it into ourselves. Everybody needs to know. And if you have never tasted a lychee, then I could... Describe the taste using the most elaborate concepts possible, right? Um, if you don't know what a lychee is, if I'm even saying it, it's just a small fruit with sweet-scented fresh, uh, flesh. <laughs> um, and it has rough, thin skin. And if you didn't know what it was and what it tasted like, for me to be able to explain that to you i can only do it in certain concepts but they can never i can never substitute the actual experience of eating it myself so to know something new like this is the you that goes beyond your ego which is a concept of you you cannot get through get there through more conceptual thinking. Um, I listen to a lot of Sadhguru um, from Inner Engineering, uh, an, an Indian guru, and uh, this this guy, is, I, I just love listening to him. He says, when you keep your intellect dipped in this limited, fragmented, accumulative dimension of your mind, you draw conclusions about life that are completely distorted. The more people become engrossed in thought, the more joyless they become. The problem is just that they have enslaved their faculty of discernment to the limitations of their sense perception. But the same intellect can be sharpened if you allow it to soak in your other aspect of your mind, your awareness. If you want to reach your ultimate nature through the mind, you need to make the intellect truly discriminatory in the ultimate sense. This does not mean dividing everything into good and bad, right and wrong. Instead, all it means is learning to discern the real from the illusion illusory what is existentially true from what is psychologically true uh, sounds like a complicated issue but it's 
That's just saying in his words everything that I've already said about our programming and our thoughts and how we all come to believe. So although only human beings can only think conceptually in the universe, at least as far as we know, we can see that all our elements still possess tremendous amounts of intelligence. Like how the universe is composed from this galactic level down to the the basic subatomic level, how the interactions of different organisms can form an ecosystem, and this sustains life. It's, it's just amazing, right, how it all comes together. It's like the example of ant colonies, you know, how they can behave like a human brain and how every organism instinctively knows how to survive and navigate through the world. And if watching people just like watch ants and how they survive and they navigate the world, it's just amazing because it's, they just go and know. I don't think they think about it. They're just doing it. You know, so that's why I think we should recognize that conceptual intelligence can only play a limited role in our existence. Uh, this may sound kind of boring to some, or maybe it's complicated, I don't know, but I find it quite interesting because the way we live in this world is just, it seems like we're so programmed that we just go by whatever everybody says. Uh, we have no critical thinking. And I've mentioned this before in my YouTube videos, it's like critical thinking was just lacking in the world. I think it's lacking in schools because I don't think anybody, no teacher has pulled out a book on critical thinking and said, okay, we're going to do this. It's not until you get into college. And then when you get to college, it's kind of late. This is something that should have been introduced to you at a younger age. You know, all this programming, you know, it's like you put one thing on TV and everybody just follows it. You know, it's like a, little ducklings following their their duck mother <laughs> you know and, and it's crazy and it all starts I think when parents start to assess their child's intelligence and a lot of times this is based on their ability to, to verbalize a con the conceptual knowledge about things you know, the child starts to think that sounds and symbols used to represent these other things are more important than the actual thing itself. So unknowingly, the child is constructing a prison within their own mind and slowly becoming trapped within this conceptual model of reality. Because, of course, at that time, they don't have this critical thinking skills and they're not being taught that. A symbol is never a thing. Never. But, oh boy, do we put these symbols up there and we hold them up like gods, right? A symbol is always going to be an abstraction. It's just a representation of something. So, like, if one, ex if one experiences a flower, there is the sight of of a beautiful form. Pick whatever flower. And then you have the fragrance of that flower, the fragrance that comes into the nose. And there are other sensations of touching the flower, 
the, the feeling of aliveness from being near the flower. All of this is lost when somebody just retreats into their mind and projects a mental symbol of a flower or verbalizes some information about the flower, like the, the, the names that we give, right? Like the, the flower's name, the attributes. All the smell is gone. The beauty's gone. The, the touching of the softness is gone when we just label it. That actual experience of reality is a com- composition of various aspects of perception. And you'll never, ever experience something the exact same way twice as reality is alive, always changing. But a symbol representing reality is just purely dead, right? It's just there. So I, I think I'm going to stop right about there, maybe. Um... But I'd like to end with something Alan Watts did say, you know, because all this just brings things, different things to mind, and it just gets me thinking more, and I might just start rambling on more, and it's already pretty deep as it is. Alan Watts says, What we have forgotten is that thoughts and words are conventions, and that it is fatal to take conventions too seriously. Uh, and that's what we do. We take these symbols, no matter if it's a person or a thing or a place, and we take them too seriously instead of looking deep into what they really are, looking at the beauty of them uh, or looking at the not-so-beautiful of them. You know, because we are much deeper than that. We are human beings, We are more than your Facebook profile or Twitter profile. We are more than a three-minute video. When we live for your job titles and vacation pictures, then your life just becomes hollow. And I believe we as humans, we want much more than that. But a lot of times we just get conditioned just, just to follow along. What can I keep up with the Joneses and... Well, I post these pictures so everybody thinks that I'm doing something great when I'm actually just average Joe. Or maybe I try to be average Joe and I'm great. <laughs> but, you know, you, you think posting pictures of your luxury life can make others jealous. You know, only the mentally fragile are going to feel diminished from your pictures. I mean, some may say, hey, they're happy for you. Others, maybe, I don't know. But if you're mentally healthy, you know, people, mentally healthy people can see right through your act. You think you get enhanced by showing off how great your life is when they're doing the same thing. So they they probably already know that your life is not as great as it is. You're not running around in Maseratis and throwing $100 bills at people. This is your mask. This is your fictional self made up of your digital mental images, right? And they they get so inflated. It just seems like these things just make make you petty, pettier. Our souls are dying, I think, when we do this. And your fake self is draining away from your life. 
you know, do you really want to live on the behalf of a ghost? I mean, it's one thing to be a ghost writer, but do you want to be a ghost yourself? <laughs> Many people think a success means uh, a fantasy office building, high stock prices, and lots of funding, and lots of employees, but they're not like that. So they end up putting up all their energy and resources and pursuing these symbols. And the symbols are only the consequence and not the cause of your success. Symbols can only give people the appearance of being successful. Sooner or later, these symbols will fade and there's no intrinsic value in their work. So be yourself. Be who you are. You know, you don't want to be like other people, you know. When, when somebody wants a flower, they don't even need to think flower. They just need to think of the soil, the manure, the seed, the water, the sunlight, which doesn't resemble a flower at all. But if they take care of those things, then the flower is going to happen one day. So you got to take care of yourself. You know, your mind, your body, your soul, take care of yourself. Because you want to be more than a symbol. You want to be more than pictures on Facebook. You want people to love you and like you for who you are. You know, if your life is about likes, then, you know, go out into the real world and get likes. (laughs) Meet real people. Not the people on Facebook are not real, but I mean, it just seems like when you're just doing nothing but internet activity, it's not real. But similarly with people, when they want success, they don't need to think about what they're going to achieve. They only need to be dedicated to the process, right? And then depending on various factors, they'll go as far as their dedication could take them. So when people want the symbols more than they actually want the process, the symbols rarely materialize for them. So don't desire symbols. Don't desire being what other people want you to be. Be yourself. Don't be a symbol. Don't look up the symbols. False gods, false whatever. That's about all. So so we kind of went over some control thoughts, controlling thoughts, and how we really don't control thoughts. And then kind of went over, and I rambled on about the conception of reality. So that's about all for today. Um, I do hope you enjoyed it, and I didn't ramble on too much, and that if, you want something broken down more, just let me know. But I, th- I think I broke it down enough. And I hope I didn't break it down to it wasn't too boring for you or just too deep. But think about it. Listen to this. Think about it. And maybe read up on it a little bit. Uh, listen to some Alan Watts on YouTube. Find a book. Uh, listen to Sadhguru. Uh, Eckhart Tolle. Um, and, you know, start a meditation practice, you know. Uh, you don't have to sit sit down and go, mmm. <laughs> sit outside. Drink a cup of tea and just listen to the birds. Feel the breeze. You know, the cool air. Uh, the cars driving by. 
just enjoy yourself a little bit. Start off the day like that. So I just want to thank you guys uh, for listening and for 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 carrying on with me. Uh, this this episode is sponsored by Culture, the Vegan Joint. It is here in Virginia Beach, Virginia. Uh, some of the best vegan food you can find. A nice little coffee shop. They got a uh, little. A little store inside where where uh, local businessmen sell their products like candles and local honey. And sometimes they have pictures in there. They have different type of events where entrepreneurs come by and they show their craft off to people. So, so check it out. It's an awesome place to go. Thank you guys for listening in. And it is a better life.